Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Alva Noy, the author of The Entanglement, How Art and Philosophy Make Us What We Are. Alva is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley, where he is a member of the Center for New Media the Institute for Cognitive and Brain Sciences, and the program in critical theory. His other books include Strange Tools, Art and Human Nature, and Learning to Look, Dispatches from the Art World. In this episode, Alva and I discuss making sense of the search for wisdom, how art helps us reorganize ourselves, why we're creatures of style, the connection between art and philosophy, wisdom in daily life, and much more. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Alva Noy. All right, Alva, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. I am uh, very glad to have you. And today we're going to be chatting about your book, The Entanglement, How Art and Philosophy Make Us What We Are. Really interesting read. I've really enjoyed going through it. But before we get into the book, we, we generally start with some sort of question around how you initially came to have an interest in, for you, maybe it's philosophy, the nature of mind, wherever you want to take it. Thanks. Yeah, um, you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a spring chicken anymore. So it's actually a little bit of a challenge mm-hmm. to to think about how the whole journey went. But really, since since the time I was a a, a kid, I've been just fascinated by this mystery, which is this thing we are and how we're interactive with each other. I remember as a kid um, being so interested in the fact that it feels one way to be alone and then another way to be with other people. Like when you're with other people, you're aware of yourself in a different way than you are when you're by yourself. And how does that work? And so right away when I was in school, I was interested in literature and history and politics. And then I got into philosophy and then I got into cognitive science. So that by the time I became a student, I was really interested in in, in the brain and cognitive psychology and how those things might contribute to understanding ourselves. And then I kept coming up against this feeling that no, none of this stuff really adds up. It doesn't give us the kind of understanding that, that uh, it doesn't really scratch my itch that I'm, that I'm, that I'm looking to have scratched. So, um, you know, I've, I've actually, this, this book that you mentioned is my, I think it's my seventh book. And in each one, I'm, I'm trying to get closer and closer to the question um, what is it to be a human being, um, or what is it to be alive? And um, uh, so my work as a as a philosopher tries to engage that. I always have, as a writer, I always have my eyes on on the general public, who I think are a repository of a lot of wisdom, but also the academic world uh, because they're my friends. That that's my sort of those are my peeps, uh, my my mm-hmm. colleagues at the university, whether they're philosophers or, or cognitive scientists. Um, so, uh, and then I'll just say one other piece of it, which is kind of a part of my story, which is that, um, for, for most of graduate school and postgraduate school, I was really interested in the science side of things. And my main interlocutors were neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists, but, uh, 
over time, I've gotten more and more interested in what art brings to the conversation. Art as, you know, an ancient, cultivated tradition of human activity and practice. Um, and one of the insights I've had is that art has a lot to teach. Art has a lot to teach all of us, but it particularly has a lot to teach philosophy and has a lot to teach the study of ourselves. Art is not a phenomenon for us to study. Art is a way of studying ourselves and also, I think, changing us. Art, art I think, is an, an engine of growth. And everything I, th I think about art, I think, is also true about philosophy because I, finally, I think philosophy, in a way, is, a, is an art. Mm. I love it. So exciting. I, I'm uh, looking forward to, to getting into some of those topics. But before we do, uh, I'm, I'm curious to ask a question that uh, I've been asking most guests here recently. And you mentioned it doesn't didn't really scratch my my itch. And I'm curious, you know, how do you make sense of maybe our call or desire to search for wisdom you know, I've had many guests on on the show that essentially get some sort of itch, and it's it's different um, different paths that it maybe calls us down. But how do you make sense of this search for wisdom? You know, the, the, that question is such a good question, and it's a good question because it doesn't have an answer. I mean, it's a it's a provocation to start thinking about how this this impulse to reflect on the situation in which we as living conscious beings find ourselves even get started developmental psychologists parents you know how does it all start i mean one of the amazing things is if you're alive you open your eyes and you don't create that world around you you discover it it's there you are surrounded by meaning whether it's mother holding you in her arms or whether it's you know that couch that you find yourself sitting on or the pet dog. I mean, we are from the very beginnings, we are already in some strange way at home in a complete world. And then as we grow, that world expands and thickens and changes. Um, but I guess, I guess I'm, I'm, forgive me if I tend to be a little bit rambling and long-winded when I think about some of this stuff. I sometimes don't know where I'm going to go until I start, start thinking. But, but one of the things that really interests me is this feeling that we are we are literally a work in progress. We don't know what we are until we engage the world around us and ourselves. So this impulse to ask why or to reflect on the meaning of or to look into what it is to be a human being, that impulse is not just kind of stepping back and being intellectual. That actually drives us to evolve and to change. You know, do I love her or am I only, you know, infatuated with her? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of questions change us if you take them seriously. And that's just a, a silly example that every, you know, 12-year-old maybe confronts. But um, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, the, the philosopher Heidegger said, a uh, human being is a problem to itself. And why that should be, I can't say exactly, but it's the basis of every religious tradition. It's the basis of every philosophical tradition that we just can't leave ourselves. We can't take ourselves for granted. We, we, nothing can be taken for granted in our lives, whether it's the, what, what we look for in our work or in our relationships or in our politics or in our 
in our relationship to our own health and well-being, we're constantly, maybe not everybody explicitly, but in a way everybody to some to some degree, and it can show itself in the most in the most kinds of everyday ways. Like when people talk to each other, I mean, you and I are just meeting now. You may say something that I don't understand. And so I'll need to interrogate you to clarify. But as you clarify what you meant to me, you'll deepen and articulate what you meant. And so you and I will enable each other to become something new through the act of not understanding each other and trying to cope with it. And in a way, I think that's the beginning of philosophy. Philosophy and art is this attempt to get a grip on where we find ourselves. Um, yeah, very abstract answer. Hope you'll forgive me. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I think it's so such an interesting just from from that question I, as you talk about this thing of uh discovering and it's so um so interesting some of these unanswerable and unending questions. But can, if I could just interrupt you, I mean discovering, yes. making, becoming. And those are that's what's so so we might say, oh, these are unanswered questions. We want to live in a society where where we only have STEM subjects investigating the answerable questions in the interest of, of you know social progress. But there is so much progress, so much making, so much becoming when we ask questions uh, where the standard of a good answer is not fixed in advance. We have to mm-hmm. we have to we have to not only invent we have to discover the question. You know, James, this is one of my favorite quotes. The the writer James Baldwin said, the aim of art is to uncover the questions that have been hidden by the answers. Mm. And mm. I think that you could say is true of philosophy. And in a way, the quest for wisdom. It's it's getting beyond the stuff we think we know to the stuff that the stuff we think we know hides us from knowing or prevents us from knowing. Mm, beautiful. Let me ask in the way of beginning, we generally try to define a, a few terms and things like that. And in the, in the title, you have the entanglement, but I'm curious just from a, maybe a most basic question, may, maybe many of the listeners understand, you know, what you mean by philosophy but what is art exactly? Like what mm. constitutes art? Right. That's a super hard question. And the trick is to say something informative by way of an answer without being dogmatic uh, and just, you know, defining it. Um, here's how I think about it. Human beings are the making species. We make stuff. We make huts. We make dwellings. We make tools. We make our whole lives, going back to our earliest origins, are as the makers. I mean, if you look in the, there's a lot of speculation about the ancient past, but if you look in in the prehistorical record, um, for millions of years, our biological ancestors worked with very primitive tools and there was really no innovation, no modification until 
something like, uh, this is very, very rough, something like 100,000 years ago. Then all of a sudden you get this technological explosion. Um, there's reason to believe that the biological mutations that gave rise to modern human beings happened well before that, well before 100,000 years ago, 250,000 years ago. So there was a 250,000 year span, uh, sorry, there was like 150,000 year span between when those biological mutations happened and when our technological flourishing happened, that 150,000 years is a massive amount of cultural time. That is a massive, I mean, we don't even know how to imagine cultural change over that kind of time scale. And I think what we did during that time was we developed language, we developed clothing, we developed culture, we developed the technologies that essentially put us on, on, on the path that we're on now. So I think we really are the making species. Um, and one of the interesting things about art is artists make stuff. And I think that the reason why artists make stuff is not because the stuff that they make is so special, but because making is so special for human beings. Mm. So when artists make stuff, they let us reflect. They give us an opportunity to reflect on us and on the place of pots or pictures or language in our lives. So, you know, the choreographer makes a dance and then lets us reflect on dancing in our origins or the painter makes a painting and lets us think about the way pictures function in our everyday life or, or the, the poem makes a poem and it lets us think about what we take for granted in our use of language. So, so the point there is that art, is a response to human to our nature or to our to the ways we we um, we are accustomed to being. But there's another piece of the puzzle. I'm sorry. I'm giving. I always give long answers. Forgive me. But there's another piece of the puzzle. There's another. There's another piece of the puzzle, which is that. So so let me, let me give an example. So you have a picture of grandma in your family photo album. And you, that picture has a caption, beloved grandma. You see it. It's, it's your mom's mom, and you, you, you honor her through that picture. So that picture is a piece of something we made for a, in a cultural setting. But now you take that picture and you put it up on the wall of a gallery. What is it? It loses its caption. It loses the context. It loses that social meaning that it has. And now it becomes a big question mark. So if somebody comes mm -hmm. to the gallery, I don't know who that is. I don't know really what it's a picture of there for. And now it gives me an opportunity to think, oh, well, what, what do pictures mean to us? And why do we make pictures like that? So the grandma's picture gets turned into a work of art, which means it gets turned into a question mark that lets us think about ourselves. And, and then for me, this is the, the second piece I was going to say, in giving us an opportunity to think about ourselves, I think it gives us an opportunity to change and mm. to become different. So I want to say art, unlike ordinary technology, is stuff we make to reveal us to ourselves and enable us to become different. Mm. Now note that that way of describing it 
It might be a painting. It might be a song. It might be a piece of pottery. I wrote a book called Strange Tools, in which I argued that a work of art is a strange tool. It's a tool that you don't know how to use. It's a tool that doesn't come with a user manual. And it's a tool, therefore, that makes you break your expectations and habits and become different to try to cope with what it is. And I think that's what art art has always been. I'd love it if you could say a bit more on, on that. I made a note of um, of something in the book of this, you know, art makes life new. Art and philosophy, this way of reorganizing our, ourselves. Yeah. Could you say a bit more there, Alva? Yeah, please. The thing about us, we humans, but also I think we animals, is that we're creatures of habit. Um, we do things, we learn to do things, we acquire skills, we follow the same paths every day, give or take. Uh, life is, is, an ex- is an extraordinary set of learned, comfortable ways of carrying on. And I think that's true with our bodies, our postures, our, our, our attitudes, but also in our, in our patterns of thought, in our use of language. Um, and it's really good that we have habits because habits scaffold going forward. You know, you couldn't, how would you do anything with your life if you had to think about how to put your feet on the ground when you get out of bed in the morning? No, you don't need to think about how to put your feet on the bed in the morning, but you can think about, you can think about another problem. So having habits frees you up to do other things, but habits are also limitations. They also hold us captive. Um, it's really hard to be free of all the habitual ways we have of talking, thinking, responding. I mean, you walk down the street, you walk your dog or whatever. How much do you see? How much do you notice? It's almost as if we go through life blind um, because we are just almost operating automatically. So I think... One of the things that art, so, so habit, I say habit, just use the word organization or reorganization. So in a way, I want to say we're organized by habits. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is also a connection to biology because we're organisms. And what is an organism but a certain kind of organized network? Um, and one of the things that art, I think, does, and philosophy too, is it gives us resources to become aware of the ways we are organized and lets us, gives us resources for reorganizing. Um, Mm. Now, so in that sense, I think art and philosophy have a kind of emancipatory function. They, they, they can free us. Now, I think it's important not to be uh, unrealistic about it. I actually don't think there's anything I don't think it's possible to be habit-free completely. I don't think freedom, whatever that would mean, is really total freedom, freedom from the past, freedom from history, freedom from context, freedom from habit. I don't think that's really possible. So the effects of the kind of ways in which art lets us grow and evolve and change is, is actually, it's precisely that. It's to let us grow and evolve and change. Um, but we're always... We're always a work in progress that needs to, to deal with ourselves. And again, I'm speaking in rather abstract terms. Let me give a kind of 
fairly kind of concrete example. Human beings like to dance. In fact, it seems to be a pretty universal thing around cultures everywhere. And most of our dancing is embedded in, um, in it's embedded in the fabric of our lives. We dance, we dance at parties. We dance to, to, to as part of a courtship ritual, or in some cultures, we dance at funerals, or we dance at weddings as part of a celebratory thing, or we dance at formal occasions, and we also dance for fun. But dancing is 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 part of our social life together, and it it probably serves all sorts of really important personal and psychological functions, like courtship or like um, the communal expression of of mourning. Um, Art dancing, I think, is not just more dancing. Art dancing is when you take this fact about us, that we dance in these ways, and you put it on the stage. And now what you're confronted with, finally, I think, is us dancing. What the choreographer is doing is showing you something about yourself. But then that choreographed dancing on the stage shines there as a model for you about what dancing looks like. So mm-hmm. that when you then are at your next party, your dancing is influenced by that dancing you saw. You know, whether it's James Brown or Michael Jackson or uh, Beyonce or, or Barishnikov, it's like these things all become part of our image of what it is to be a dancer. And not that we not that we go to parties and try to be like Barishnikov, but it it's it goes into our minds as a picture of what it is to be a dancer. Um, so that you get this the art of dance, which originally is a kind of reflection of dancing in our normal lives, loops down and changes the way we dance in our normal lives, which then feeds a new art of dance, which then loops down and feeds a new dancing activity. So that through the vast cycles of history, when you are by yourself at home at the end of a long day and you have a drink and you put on your favorite music and you want to just rock out by yourself, the way you do that expresses that history. Because your conception of what it is to like rock out to your favorite song is informed by a whole history's worth of imagery about what it is to dance at all. So like, you know, if you think of Tom Cruise doing his air guitar dance across the floor or whatever it is, there's no such thing as innocent dancing. Dancing is already shaped by art. And to me, that's a a small example of the way art and philosophy make us up, make up the way we feel, make up the way we relate to each other, make up the way we inhabit the world. That's why my subtitle is How Art and Philosophy Make Us What We Are. Was there any particular pieces of art or some sort of experiential thing that shifted your perspective or like, you know, reorganized you personally? Because obviously you've worked many years in, uh, you know, philosophy of mind and different things. And then at, at some point in time, there was some sort of, uh, you know, reorganization. Mm-hmm. Two pieces to that. 
the 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 bigger piece is that the thing that has always impressed me about art is how challenging it is. Um, you look at a painting and somebody else says that's wonderful, and you look at it and you say, "Well, what's wonderful about it? I see it, but so learning to see it and experiencing the limitations of your own seeing. So here's an experience which I've had many times. You go to a gallery, you walk into the room, and there's paintings on the wall, and you're like, ho-hum, paintings on the wall. Where's the, where's the fascination? And your impulse is to go on to the next room or talk to your friend. But maybe the friend that you're with is a huge fan of that work. And she says, no, look, look what's going on in that picture. Did you notice that there's actually a hidden figure behind that figure? And the, notice the color, the color scheme. And then all of a sudden you see it. You, it was there, it wasn't hidden, but you couldn't see it. And now through standing there and looking at it, all of a sudden you can see it. And now this kind of ho-hum picture that didn't really do anything for you in the wall is, is a playground of adventure. It's an opportunity to see what you couldn't see, even though it was right in front of your eyes. It's an opportunity to move from not seeing to seeing or from seeing to seeing differently. It's an opportunity to reorganize yourself and to achieve a kind of new perceptual consciousness. So I'm really interested in the way a negative thing, not being able to see, is actually, or maybe even like a, a feeling of boredom, is actually an opportunity for growth, for change, and for discovery. Mm. Um, mm. And that's really what uh, what I think art can be. So, but but I'm being very honest when I say that my own personal experience of art's challenges is what has made me sort of think about that process, think about that movement from oh, they all kind of look the same to, wow, each of these objects holds so much opportunity for new ways of seeing, thinking, or feeling. Work which depends on changing you. Um, and by the way, I think this is a really another example of the way art is instructive because in terms of the pure optical process, you saw the painting when you looked at it, but you saw it without seeing it. You saw it without knowing it. And that, this is an idea that I think just reminds us of how much there more there is to consciousness of the world around us than the activation of cells in the eyes. You really need to think about curiosity, context, meaning to understand what perception is. And art is a really nice space in which we can live that fact. Um, I said there were two pieces to the answer. The other is that um, I think it's fair to say that I'm not very good at art. I, I, I've never had an aptitude for it, but I grew up in a family of people who do. My father and my mother and my brother are all artists. And so it's, it's something I've always valued, but had a sense that I needed to understand it better. I wanted to figure out what it is that, that these people are able to do that I'm not able to do. And then it was a kind of a special discovery for, discovery for me when I realized that this thing I was really good at, namely philosophy, is actually my way of trying to engage with the same kinds of things that art engages with. So interesting. I have a um, a curiosity 
like practical question for you. We have a little daily newsletter that that we do that focuses, I, I would say, primarily on philosophy, like like this podcast does. But a few months ago, we started um, this weekly series, "The Wisdom of Art," which it includes a kind of a famous piece of uh, painting, a well-known poem, along with some sort of bit of prose, if you will, that is maybe on the on the subject. And I don't exactly know why I felt that that was useful in something, you know, important to do. So for the listeners out there that may get that weekly a painting, a poem in, in prose, what are the benefits of, mm. you talked about that, that seeing thing, mm. but from a practical thing of, of taking the time to mm. try to see and, and maybe from a poem thing, feel, um, you know, just experience that. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, I'm really, that's, that's something I've actually thought about. Um, so I said before that I, I sometimes have negative emotions with art. It's interesting because one of the most, I love art. I, like when I am in a city, the thing I like to do is go to the local museum. I just love it. But I often have the experience of being bored by art. Even art which on reflection is really good. So that made me start thinking about, could it be that the ability of art to bore us is actually a gift, a benefit, and what could be going on there. And so here's what I came up with. Um, it goes back to the thing we were just talking about. Our lives are organized. We don't live in the we don't live in the moment. We live in the arcs of our projects. So you know, this interview, you know, my marriage, my career. Uh, my years in college or my years in high school, whatever it is, each of us. And and so we divide life in these ways. Now, the thing is, like high school, it has a beginning and a middle and an end. And when you say, I'm now in high school, you're already charting an arc. So in a way, the end is already foretold. It's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a baseball. You throw it up and you know where it's going to come down. Within reason. Surprises can happen. But... Um, I think it's as we get older, our lives become more and more organized with these nesting arcs of commitment, work, life, marriage, family, career, service, whatever it might be. Um, and without that, our lives would be meaningless because it's our marriage, our work, our, our lives, our, our, our parenthood, our, our high school. I mean, these are the things that literally are the meanings of our lives. But they also bring us racing along like a baseball shot through the air on an arc. The thing about a work of art, whether it's a poem or a painting or a uh, little prose description, is that those things say, stop. <laughs> you, they interrupt what you're doing. You know, if you're thinking about your email when you're in the museum, then you are blind to what you're seeing. If you're thinking about what somebody tells you this poem means when you're reading the poem, then you're not reading the poem. To really engage in artwork is to go into a zone of 
interrupting, for whatever the brief amount of time is, interrupting your life. It sounds kind of dramatic, but I think it's really true. You're, you're all of a sudden, time drops out of the arc into the metronome. Click, 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 click. And it's just you, the object you're looking at, and time. Time slows down. Uh, that's a benefit. You want to live longer? Slow time down. <laughs> and you can do it. You can do it by paying attention to things right now. Stop living in five years ahead. Stop living in the fantasy of your pension. Stop living in the conclusion of this event. Live in the present moment of this event. It's not easy, but works of art are an invitation to do that because you cannot see them if you're if you're engaged in the race. And not only do they I once knew a guy who said, if you want to slow your life down, quit your job and get a divorce. Um, and what I think, what I realized, you know, what he was getting, and I'm not recommending quitting your job or getting a divorce, but what he was recommending is break the habits. And that's mm -hmm. every work of art is an opportunity to break your habits. And in that sense, shift into a very, very slow gear. Um, and then furthermore, that negative feeling which may result of, oh my God, the play has only been going on for 10 minutes and I already want to leave. I need to, this is, I'm, I'm, I need to check my, my messages. That irritation is really an opportunity by, by reflecting on what's going on there to, to become a little different, maybe not revolutionarily different, but a little different and to grow and change. So that's what I think you're offering your readers when you offer them um, a, a poem to think about or a painting to think about. You're offering, offering them a chance to recover what it is not to already be in the middle of a task where you already know what success or failure is, but just to be given given the present. And and I, it's interesting because when I started thinking about this, I remembered that as a kid, um, as a little kid, you know, I grew up in the time when parents didn't micro-organize their kids' lives. And I remember like a Sunday afternoon was the boringest thing that there was. I mean, I'd be out running around with my friends, but there would be these Sundays seemed like an, a vast stretch of time because <laughs> it's just like, or, or a summer, like the middle of summer was summer was an eternity when you were a kid. Um, at least for me, I guess speaking just to my own case. And I think art is an opportunity to recapture that feeling, which isn't all bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fascinating. I had a, a previous guest that uh, came on. It's been a long time, but wrote about this idea of uh, going to look at a painting for three hours uninterrupted mm. and how this strange tool in, in your words, like, you know, is, is doing this work over the, t over time and like hour two to hour three, this mm. particular painting being different than it was, you know, in that first, uh, hour. There's a, another book that I read a long time ago. Henry Nouwen wrote a book on 
essentially this experience of looking at uh, Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son for, you know, like 10 hours straight, it just like sucked him in. Um, and, and I'm curious, like there's that thing of maybe we're before it, maybe it's on our screen, we're in a museum. But what about this idea of essentially we can pull it up in our mind? You know, if we have a, a favorite painting, a favorite you know, song, as we're navigating through the day, you know, we have this ability to pull it up and actually see it in our, in our minds. Like, how do you think about that in the way of these strange tools, essentially like living with us, if you will? Yeah, that's, that's a really beautiful, a beautiful thought. And it reminds me of, um, I once had a medical scare. It turned out I turned out to be okay, but there was a period when I was having test after test, and I was inside an MRI mm-hmm. and having all these sort of scary moments, not knowing what was going on. And and I did exactly that. I actually called to mind works of art that that were important to me, and um, they helped me get through. They helped me get through those moments. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I think. I don't have a very good answer for that, except that I think that part of what goes on there is part of what's going on is that those works of art are transcendent, by which I mean they're bigger than you can actually remember. You can kind of remember what it looks like, but they're bigger. I mean, there's obviously prodigies that can remember a whole symphony note for note, but most of us, you remember the rough development of the song or the music or the symphony or the painting, but you know, without necessarily photographic recall. Um, but so the the work in your memory becomes an opportunity to ask questions and think about and try to try to reconstruct and discover. So it's the work of art invites you to do something, not just to receive it, but to remake it. And that's a very powerful, I think, affirming thing to do. Um, um and then also it, it maybe helps you get back into the emotional place that you were in when you had a previous positive experience of it. I'm thinking if you're like, you know, sitting in a doctor's office and you're scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to your first comment about, uh, about um, spending a lot of time looking at something, one of my favorite things to do is I have a couple of friends I like to look at art with. And we'll go to a show and there'll be 100 paintings in the show at a big museum. But we'll go and we'll just, look around until we find one picture that we're interested in staying with. And we'll spend an hour with that picture. And in a, in a weird way, what we do is we, we make the picture into our object of interest, but it also becomes a prop for our own conversation. And the more we talk about it and we'll free associate, we'll say, Oh, this reminds me of that. Or um, what I really like about this or what I don't like about this and each each one of those moves dynamically changes our conversation, our relationship, and also how we see the thing, how we see the work. So you really leave with a vivid sense of um, of having accomplished something, because it's very easy to be on passive mode when you go to a, a gallery or a museum or a concert. Does that apply in your view to many different um, domains? Like I'm thinking of the the people that 
have a real appreciation for food, for example, and mm-hmm. they go out and maybe mm-hmm. that same thing happens or in the way of uh, books, we do a little book club thing where we meet up on Fridays and kind of have some discussions around reading. Is, mm-hmm. is it intersected through through many different things in that same way? Yeah, I mean, I think the universe is there for us to pay attention to and cultivating the ability to pay attention is really an art. Um, And I would even go so far as to say our capacity to love each other, to see each other, to know each other, to pay attention to each other. That's not something that um, comes for free. Uh, We need to work at that. That's why, that's why a marriage or a love relationship or parenting is such hard work. It's not, it's not easy to always show up for the other and, and see them and know them. And it's very easy to have prejudices or resentments or ways of preventing yourself from being open with a loving heart to the other person. <laughs> um, and um, I think that um, we underestimate how hard it is to see, how hard it is to pay attention, how hard it is to love. In our culture, we sort of think, oh, everybody can love. But yeah, everybody can love, but they have to try to love. And everybody can see. But yeah, you can pay the money in the museum and walk through and not ever really see anything if you don't make an effort. Um, Something I've actually written about and cared a lot about is I'm a baseball fan. And I'm very interested in how hard it is, how much education in a way it requires to see a baseball game. And when you take a friend to a baseball game who's never, never seen one before, you know, like they don't, they don't see the double play, they don't see the the strikeout, they don't see the error, they just see people moving around on the field, and you can teach them to see it, and to teach them to see it is also to teach them to care about it, and so caring and seeing kind of go together, and so I think we can we can definitely cultivate this. It's not just for art, it's not a unique thing about art. I will say that there is one thing special about art which makes it different from many of the other areas where we might wish to cultivate attention. I think, I'm not 100% certain about this, but I think this is true, is that when it comes to art, there really is no such thing as getting it right. There's no such thing as failing. With the baseball game, you can kind of fail to understand what's going on. And, and, and either there was a double play or there wasn't. Either one team won or they didn't. Um, either the game was rained out or it wasn't. With art, no response is invalid. And there is simply no independent measure of success or failure. Um, and I think that's, that's um, a very special thing about art, maybe. The, that it really, mm-hmm. precisely because it's so open, it lets it be about your relationship to what you're seeing without any external pressure. Mm. So interesting. I I made a note here from a chapter you have titled The Seepage Problem. You say that art and philosophy are entangled with life and science. Um, And this has broad implications of our understanding of of science and, and nature. Could you say more? In a way, the the concern is, one of the things I argue in this book is that human being 
is aesthetic. Now, a lot of people, when they hear the word aesthetic, they think, oh, that has to do with whether you like the way something looks or tastes. But for, I have something very specific in mind by aesthetic. For me, and it goes back to what we were just discussing. For me, aesthetic is what I call the aesthetic predicament is encountering something but not being able to see it. Either because you're habitually not used to it, because you don't care about it. You're a kid been dragged to the museum and you don't really see the artwork. But you can choose to do the work of trying to see it and then pops into focus as we were discussing earlier. That to me is, is I call that aesthetic work. And I think that's so important and so valuable. Um, one of the things I think is that I argue in the book is that we are aesthetic problems to ourselves. We don't know how to bring ourselves for ourselves into focus. And when we do, um, what we see in ourselves changes. So, you know, philosophers and scientists try to study consciousness and perception, but conscious, consciousness and perception are objects whose very character is altered through the interrogation of them by ourselves. Um, so that um, so that there's kind of no fixed point. And this is not meant to be an argument that there can't be a science of the human, but it means that a science of the human has to look more like art and philosophy than it's going to look like physics. Hmm. But then the question I came to in that final chapter was, well, all right, it's true of cognitive psychology and, and um, neuroscience that they come up against according to me, the aesthetic character of ourselves or of our relationship to ourselves. But, but what, about, what about physics? After all, physics is working with human concepts too. You know, and, and might there be a, um, a, a seepage of the kind of indeterminacy that characterizes our relationship to ourselves into these other domains. And since we know those other domains are so successful and so um, uh, effective as domains for scientific research, then is there really any reason to be skeptical that we can't be similarly successful about the scientific study of ourselves? Um, and so the theme then that I really try to look at there is how to think about the, the relationship between science on the one hand, like physics or chemistry, and philosophy or art on the other. And one of the examples that I use to illustrate that is I make a contrast between and this is kind of arbitrary in terms of the words, but the concept is, is important. Um, I make a distinction between art and design. So like when, a, when, a, when an industrial designer builds a product, they have a very clear set of criteria that they're trying to meet. It's got to have a certain function. It's got to be manufacturable at a certain price point. It's got to be distributable. It's got to be non-poisonous. It's got to be, I mean, all these different things that make it a good or a bad design. And And I argue that the difference between art and design is that art never has any set list of criteria for success or failure that it can take for granted. And, and that's why the work of art is, is able to do what it does. In a way, we make art out of design. 
artists make things just like designers do, but the design is just raw material for the creative work of the artist. But the, the artwork itself is never good or bad for because it does this, that, or the other. You can never say that. You can never reduce an artwork in the way you can reduce a design. And I kind of think that's what's going on in science too. Um, um, the, 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 decisive, the interesting thing about scientific questions is that they tend to be well-defined and we have well-defined criteria for what it would be to answer them. You know, and we get a finding in, in math or in chemistry and physics and we publish it and it's, it's, you know, we put it in the archives. But we never put anything in the philosophy archives in that way or in the art archives because anything in the archive is just an occasion for more, for more, um, for more um, creation. And one of the things I try to show in the book also is that although this is a real difference between art and design and between philosophy and science, that art and design and philosophy and science are themselves entangled with each other. So that it's mm. just it becomes it becomes a matter of degree. Uh, and there's this philosoph this philosophy going on in science and there's science going on in philosophy and there's design going on in art and art going on in design. Let me ask a like related question to that. You said something earlier about, you know, there's no like getting it right per se in terms of art. And you're talking about art and design there. Um you know, should we think about art as like imperfect in a way? As you've been talking, I'm I'm thinking of a, a story. I don't know the uh, complete exact details, but something of one of Monet's famous paintings of, you know, painted it 270 times or some sort of, you know, just massive number of times. And then got to the point of where it was good enough, you know, said something along the lines that, you know, it's not like he was necessarily striving for perfection in some sort of way. It's this in the way of creating. Uh, is there something important about realizing that it's not necessarily about um, perfection in a way? I don't exactly know where I'm going, but, uh, you know, something uh, yeah. to throw out there. It's interesting because um, the artist might be striving for perfection. Like he might be trying to get mm -hmm. it right. And it's that effort to try to get it right, which is what makes him go back to the same thing, like Cezanne painting that same mountain time and time again. Or um, there's an artist, I'm just drawing a blank on his name. There's a famous American artist who painted, uh, he painted fishermen's boats on the coast of New England. Um, again and again and again, trying to get it, trying to get it right. Um, but, um, and you can even say relative to one of those artists' bodies of work, oh, this one is better than that one. Like you kind of nailed it here, but something's off on that one. That's perfectly a meaningful way to talk. But outside of the framework of your engagement with that artist's work, there isn't such a thing as getting it right <laughs> like you do you know is it is it more realistic but what counts as realistic i mean sometimes the most realistic rendition of an emotion could be in a very abstract line drawing so so it's it's um i think artists um the notion of perfect or imperfect becomes itself a kind of moving flexible target in the arts um 
Actually, there's another another aspect of this that I, I didn't refer to, and I, I often neglect to mention this, and it's it's a mistake because it's important. I've in 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 our conversation and in the book, I've been thinking about sort of art and its relation to life, and how we make art out of life, art out of design, art out of making activity, but then art uh, loops down and alters that activity so that you get this entanglement. But that's a kind of, if you like, art life vertical looping. But there's another kind of looping with art, which is art's relationship to other art. So a painter has been educated in how to be a painter by looking at other paintings and is often making art which is responsive to what other artists are doing, you know, the, the art world, so that within art, there's a kind of a, a, a like a horizontal dialogue between other artists as well as the historical past. And art is constantly commenting on, responding to, differentiating itself from other art, um, which is a whole other level of, of, uh, of complexity. As we start to to wrap up here, Alva, let me ask a question around, um, you mentioned style earlier. Mm. You know, I, I made a note, human beings are not merely creatures of habit. We are creatures of style. For anyone that's been listening to the conversation and maybe having a difficult time connecting themselves or thinking about themselves in the way of... Uh, like a creature of style, this idea of like the art of living Montaigne, you know, described himself as like my art and profession is to live, Mm -hmm. but we don't always, sometimes it's difficult for us to think about ourselves that way. And I'm curious if you have any, any thoughts for someone listening that, that might have, uh, you know, just a bit of difficulty thinking about themselves as a, as um you know a creature of style i guess yeah beautiful question thank you so much for the opportunity i hope i can do it justice because it's it's really kind of um it's a question that leads in a lot of directions one thing um you know if you look in an encyclopedia of cognitive science or an encyclopedia of philosophy of mind there isn't a chapter on style um it's it's not it's not considered a serious topic from for those fields you know, style is fashion, style is pop culture, style is music, um, style isn't serious. Um, style is like, yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not serious, it's superficial. Um, but I've come to think that style is actually one of the deep, deepest concepts for understanding human life. Um, and let me see if I can share with you and, and, and your listeners some sense of why that is. Um, you can, you know, style comes from the word stylus, which was an old Latin word for pen or for, for, for a thing with which you make a mark. And the amazing thing is, as we all know, is that you can identify a person by the way they write. That is, I'm tr- I'm trying to write the letter that you and I have both been taught. That you write it your way, and I write it my way. Our marks leave a trace of who we are. So you can see me, you can identify me from my mark, and I can identify you from your mark. It turns out that everything a human being does leaves a trace of identity in that way. I can recognize you from behind, walking down the street. 
I can recognize you from other kinds of choices you make in the way you look, the way you squint your eyes, the way you nod your head, the way you um, purse your lips, the way we're constantly, we, we are, in that sense, literally assemblages of style. Here's an interesting thing. We have individual styles. So Josh, you have your style, I have my style. But we also have group styles. There are distinctively American ways of doing something and distinctively Chinese mm-hmm. ways of doing something. And there are distinctively teenager ways of doing something and distinctively like hip hop ways of doing something or distinctively punk rock ways of doing something or distinctively French ways of doing something. Um, maybe there's even male and female ways of holding one's body and one, one's posture, at least, you know, stereotypically speaking. And uh, so that means I can, I can know a lot about you from your style, just as a connoisseur of art can look at a painting and say, this was made in the 17th century in a very specific part of Europe by somebody who clearly had experienced such and such in his life, right? Uh, so style is this amazing, like, record of who, who we are individually and who we are collectively. Um, here's another really interesting thing about style. It's visible and it's intelligible. I can I can I I can see your style and you can see mine. But notice it's also really, really it can be really hard to see style. So for example, mm-hmm. if I show you pictures of the way people dressed two, three hundred years ago, to you they might just fall into the style of old fashioned. Whereas somebody who's knowledgeable about history could say, oh, that's 17th century French, and that's, you know, Bavarian uh, 1650. Um, we can watch, we can listen to pop music on the radio and say, oh, that's, you know, classic rock, or that's hip hop in the West Coast style, or that's, um, you know, grunge music, whatever. We have these, we can hear it, unless we can't. Mm-hmm. So style is something we can perceive and fail to perceive it's a filter and a way in and it's also something we can cultivate in ourselves the ability to perceive so the the idea i have is that style is a kind of currency with which we communicate with each other um we like we we signal each other stylistically we may be more or less self-conscious of it about it, um, but I think that style really—it's um, kind of like—it's kind of like the face we share with each other. And um, I even would go further and say that 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 things like racial difference like race as it functions in American society, I think it's very closely related to style. Um, And why do I say that? Well, one of the interesting things about race is it's skin deep. And one of the interesting things about race is that it's not skin deep. So one of the interesting things about race is that it both is and isn't skin deep. Like you both can and can't tell what somebody's race is, race is by the way they look. But, um, um, and I think style is a really interesting concept to try to flesh that out. Or here's an even even better example. 
um, or not better, but maybe a, a less charged and more easy to handle example. Think about about accent and dialect. You know, why do why do New Yorkers speak like New Yorkers? Why do Valley girls talk like Valley girls? Why do Londoners talk like Londoners? Or Cockney people talk like Cockney people? The, the first thought we have is, well, they talk the way people around them talk. But most of those groups of people that I just mentioned come from very diverse linguistic groups. You know, like, like for example, there's differences in black and white English, and yet black and white people that live right next to each other. We all watch the same TV. We all listen to the same music. Why do we, why do we talk the way we talk? It's almost as if we chose to talk the way we talk, and I think that's not quite right. But what I do think is going on there is it's, there's something like we talk the way we think we're supposed to talk. And what shapes that becomes an interestingly complicated question. Um, so we adopt the styles we think we're supposed to have. Um, and we also sometimes resist the styles we think we're supposed to have. So I don't have a New York accent, even though I grew up in New York. Um, why? Well, some, 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 somewhere along the line, I, just, I decided I was supposed to sound a little bit different from that. Uh, or... Um, so I think style is this really lively space of human um, making and experimentation. And of course, and now this is kind of the, the punchline in a way, is style is the kind of thing that art directly investigates. So, um, and that, that mm. paying attention to art can help us cultivate. So um, it's not that I'm trying to say uh, everybody needs to study art to understand themselves. But I'm saying here's this really interesting example where a concept that's just naturally at home in the aesthetic setting turns out to be really basic for thinking about human being. So good, Alva. This has really been fascinating in a, in a fascinating book as well. Style is the art. It directly investigates. Uh, yeah, so good. And your book is, uh, as a reminder, The Entanglement, How Art and Philosophy Make Us What We Are. Really enjoyed it. Highly encourage it to the to the listeners. Is there anywhere that you might point anyone that is listening, interested in learning more about your work, Alva? Oh, thanks for that. Um, I have a uh, a website. It's alvanoe.com. That's A L V is in Victor A N is in Nancy O E dot com. And I have links to all my other books on there. And I try when I have the time. I try to update it and that let you know post information about when I'm traveling, where I might be giving lectures. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be speaking in Chicago and New York and Seattle. Um and I think a few other places I'm joining oh Oakland, a few other places I'm forgetting to name uh about the book in in sort of bookstores and um and uh yeah I'm, and I, I'm, people should also just my email is on that website if somebody wants to follow up with something I said. I'm, I'm happy to field emails too. Oh, well, beautiful. Well, we'll link everything in the show notes so it's easy to find. Uh, Alva, I'm grateful for you taking the time. Thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes. Until next time, be wise and be well.